went up to Canberra the other week to do a bunch of different interviews. And one of them was with this week's guest, Paul Kane. I've been talking quite a bit recently about this uh, fairly one-sided relationship between Australian poetry and American poetry. Usually it's us looking at America, thinking about America, responding to American poetry. Paul has a really interesting perspective on this because he's an American poet looking back at Australian poetry and writing about it, thinking about it. He's a founding member of the American Association of Australian Literary Studies. It's kind of amazing to me that such a thing exists. He studied over here in Melbourne. Uh, he lives here for part of the year in a house that he built out in the Victorian countryside. And he wrote this book called Australian Poetry, Romanticism and Negativity, which, as Paul explains, has had this long life as a study of where our poetry comes from. Paul's bio, honestly, is quite overwhelming. I tried not to think about it too hard when I was interviewing him. He's studied at Yale. He's won a whole slew of awards. The people he's worked with have something like a mythical status, at least to me. And until last year, he taught at Vassar. And it's also worth mentioning that at the end of last year, he was awarded an Order of Australia for his services to Australian literature. So I felt pretty, um, pretty honoured, really, that Paul wanted to sit down with me and, and have this conversation. I asked him to meet me at Smith's Bookshop. When I got there, I realised Smith's isn't a bookshop anymore. Smith's is now like a venue that is full of um, all these couches and it's a little bit shambolic. Luckily, Paul had been there the night before, so he kind of knew what to expect. But I showed up and went, oh, my God, I can't interview this guy here. This is this is not going to work at all. But he was entirely gracious about the whole thing. He He was just delightful. I really hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did having it. I really do hope I get to cross paths with Paul again soon while he's here. I have to also add my sincere thanks to Wallace, who let me know that Paul was coming to Australia. I'm so glad he did. Without that tip-off, none of this would have happened. I will be back at the end with some follow-up from previous episodes, but until then, I really hope you enjoy this one. read that you lived in is it like Gippsland type area no no, no no it's up in the uh, uh, the gold fields mm. so that's uh, sort like of north Cus of Ballarat okay south of Maryborough and west of Dalesford okay and a kind of triangle that's uh, a volcanic field and uh, right. the house is on top of an old volcano wow <laughs> that's incredible I yeah I mean I guess my first like the most obvious question maybe is just why why us like why Australia yeah it's uh, it's quite contingent uh, <laughs> I um, my, my late wife uh, Tina was um, uh, an American who moved here with her mother when she was seven mm -hmm. uh, Les Murray used to call her an American from Melbourne uh, right. because she grew up in Melbourne from 7 to 17 and went back to the States to um, go to university and spend time with her father. And uh, so when I met her, um, 
1979, we came down to Melbourne because her mother was living there okay. and her brother. And so I had to meet them. Other than that, Australia was uh, not on my radar uh, at all. Uh, so coming here was uh, quite a, a revelation mm -hmm. because I knew nothing about Australia mm -hmm. and nothing about Australian literature. And when I got here, I just fell in love with uh, the place and the people, but also the literature because I started haunting the bookshops in Melbourne. And uh, first of all, there, I was surprised at how many there were. I would love to hear which bookshops you went to. Uh, Weber's, uh, which no longer exists. No longer, yeah. uh, Readings, of course, still was there. Right. Um, there was one down in uh, South Yarra, whose name I've forgotten, but I think it still might be there. Okay. Um, there were a lot of used bookshops uh, yep. right around the university. I think a lot of those have probably moved on, but we still have our second-hand bookshops. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then. Uh, I started reading the, the poetry that I was finding on the, on the shelves, and uh, I was uh, really struck by the, the quality. And, uh, and so I began to branch out, and the more I read, the more intrigued I became. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the origin of my interest in Australia. And at a certain point, I, um, I decided that we needed to come for a longer time. And so I applied for a Fulbright uh, scholarship to really write a book on Australian poetry. And, uh, and they gave that to me, and I was assigned to Melbourne University at a time when it was very lively. Mm. Uh, lots was going, it was in transition, so there was a lot of conflict, actually, uh, in the English department, <laughs> but it made fun. it Always very fun. lively. <laughs> uh, and uh, a number of other um, students there that I really liked. And so uh, I, um, I wrote, um, you know, a, a book, a thesis on Australian poetry, which uh, then grew into the, the book uh, Australian Poetry, uh, Romanticism and Negativity. Which has had this huge, wide-ranging impact on, on so many poets, I think, here. Well, I, um, I, I think it's had um, sort of a, a, it's had two lives. I think when it came out, mm. and, and I sort of anticipated this, it, um, it was of interest to a lot of people, particularly poets, and uh, of course, you know, got reviewed and all. And then uh, it, it sort of, you know, died away. There were other things going on, but it had a second life with, I would say, graduate students, mm -hmm. <laughs> because they got embedded in the universities. And the initial interest in it, I think, focused on my arguments about romanticism in Australian literature and not so much the second part of it, which was about uh, negativity, which was a more difficult idea based on philosophic and psychoanalytic uh, theories. But those were the ones that the graduate students became interested in. Right, so right. I think it's had this sort of double life. And so it does kind of show up um, often with people arguing with it or against it, which I think is exactly what you want. That is what you want, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's it's been a while, and so there have been uh, other books out that have gone in different directions. But I, I think it's it's held up mm. uh, certainly as an argument that uh, is worth taking seriously. Mm. So when people argue with the book, what is the most common thing that they argue with? Is it that idea of negativity? No, I think uh, the 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 first line of argument is often the, the selection of poets okay. that, that I look at, because uh -huh. I was looking at what was um, uh, sort of canonical at the time. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is 
30 plus years ago. Uh, and that was partly determined by s the scholarship of right. what was really available and in scholarly editions that you could rely on. And, and really 30, 40 years ago, there weren't that many. Um, even the third prominent poets didn't have reliable editions. Mm -hmm. So um, as a scholar, I, I gravitated towards those that I, I felt comfortable about. But it was also a narrow um, canon at the time, and um, there were certainly, you know, uh, women, uh, Judith Wright and Gwen Harwood and so on. But I think now people would want to have much more diversity. Mm. Uh, but that diversity is more a, a 20th century phenomenon than, than it would have been uh, 19th or early 20th, mm -hmm. because it's it's so different now. Yeah. And, 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 and so, um, so much more gratifying to see the way in which poetry has developed. Well, I read you saying in articles about your receiving the Order of Australia, congratulations. Thank you. That you were saying that Australian poetry is having a bit of a renaissance at the moment. It's a long renaissance. It's I mean, a long I think, renaissance. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I really think it starts, you know, with the, the, um, the late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a very exciting time. And it was also a period when you were just beginning to get interest in the um, not only the academic study of, of poetry, but uh, writing um, um, degrees, which had taken off in America already, uh, lots of writing programs, creative writing programs. And, and that now seems to be a, a feature in Australian uh, academic life. Mm -hmm. and, and that creates a different dynamic because you have um, a lot of mentorship going on. You have many more people reading and writing poetry. And uh, that has, uh, I think, proven to be really fecund mm. in establishing poetry as a very lively art uh, ever since. Mm. Um, but, you know, to my way of reading, it's always been really interesting in Australia. Uh, Do you remember if there was a poet or a book or even a single poem that convinced you, that gave you that moment of thinking, I actually really want to spend a lot more time with this? And well, there were, uh, in America, there were um, very few Australian poets um, uh, circulating. Mm. The, um, the one who had the, uh, uh, an actual reputation was um, Alec Hope, A.D. Hope. And, uh, I didn't even recognize his name. He said yeah, Alec Hope. Yes. I was like, who is that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hope. Yeah. Um, uh, who, who I have to say, I got to visit uh, once uh, here in Canberra in in his office in the A. D. Hope building. A. D. Hope building. I've which, been there. Yeah. Uh, which was really, um, I found somewhat amusing. Mm. Uh, the other uh, poet who was just beginning to to um, make an impact was Les Murray. And, uh, but not many others. Um, you know, that's changed a little bit, but not a lot. Um, so uh, those two already said to me, well, there's, there's something you know, going on here. But it wasn't until I got here that I got a full sense of what was happening. Mm. Um, and, and part of that fuller sense was getting to know their work better, but also many other poets. Um, it is, I, I think that's right, even though it is a bit disheartening to hear that Still, if you went overseas, you went to the UK or, or to America, mm -hmm. and you introduced yourself and said, "Hi, I'm an Australian poet," they'd say, "Oh, Les Murray." <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He, would be, he would be the guy. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, there are a few others now, but 
Um, a number of years ago, I, um, I did a, a series with um, one of my publishers, George Braziller, a publisher in New York, on um, contemporary Australian poets. I said, I want to introduce a few Australian poets to American audiences. Mm -hmm. And I interested, actually, the, um, um, the, um, the, the government here in that project, and they helped fund it. And so I, I published six uh, contemporary Australian poets. And to, uh, uh, to make an argument for that, I did some research on the publication of poetry in America. And that particular year that I looked at, there were about 10,000 books of poetry published. And this included chapbooks and privately published things. But, when but was this? This was, um, this was maybe 10 years ago. 10,000 10,000, that was one year. Uh, of those 10,000, two were Australian. And that was a good year. <laughs> who were the two? Do you remember who the two Australians were? Uh, I, I, um, I think one was John Kinsella and the other was um, uh, Les Murray. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, that probably hasn't changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, and what it also tells you is, is just the sheer quantity in America uh, is overwhelming. The, the, the ratio of, of noise to information with poetry is, is hard to sort out. Mm -hmm. If you've got that many every year, how do you know, you know, where the where the best writing is? How do you know? Like, what do you use as a sorting function? Uh, you become you become dependent on on others who are you know uh, doing the the work of editing volumes and and publishers. You know, you you look to to the reputable publishers, of which there are many. Mm -hmm. um, but you also know that there are going to be writers out there that you may never, you know, discover, but yeah. might be discovered at a later date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wow, that that astounds me. That number, because I mean, what would it be here now? I I had a guesstimate because I've interviewed. Um, Sarah Hollenbat and Kate Middleton, who both mm. have done poetry editing for yes. Ireland. Yes. And um, mm -hmm. and they said that when they were in that role, they got about a thousand submissions per submission period. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that tells me that there's somewhere in the order of maybe two to three thousand poets seriously working in writing, and then if maybe mm -hmm. ten percent of them publish a book. Yeah, uh, that's just a few hundred. Yeah. yeah, just a few hundred, right? Yeah, well, yeah, of course, uh, it depends on, again, what we mean by publishing because yeah. there'll be people who are doing, you know, private editions and all, yeah. and chapbooks. Um, uh, I, I think the people who do the, the, the sort of best Australian poets think they probably have a, uh, a good sense of, of the publishing scene. Mm. But it, it's, of course, much smaller here than in America just because of the, the demographics. Mm. You know, we have 320. Five million people. Yeah, it's um, about three hundred more, three hundred million more. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even know why I'm going down this line of like numbers, but it does. I think it bears sort of repeating, making visible that this is just a tiny, tiny, tiny scene, and that that has ramifications. I think um, in lots of different directions. Well, yes, it, it can. The the uh, if the way I inflect it is is. Uh, that although the quantity is small, the, it's the, the quality was, was so striking. 
the phrase we like to use is we punch above our weight. Yes, and, and of course you, you do that, you do that in, in literature, you do that, I would say, in the visual arts, and of course in sports. Of course in sports, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> An area I care deeply about. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, let me come back to uh, romanticism and negativity for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, because I read in your discussion with Elizabeth that you wouldn't write the same book now, and uh, and you just said you know you there would be a more diverse canon that you could sort of look at a more mm -hmm. diverse group of people publishing. Is there a, are there other things that you would change? Well, I don't think I would change the argument for um, for either the romanticism or the negativity. Part of what I was looking at was the way in which uh, Australia was reinventing itself culturally sort of uh, time and again, mm. uh, and there was a historical argument as well as a theoretical argument behind that. But part of that was the fact that the, uh, the culture was still, as it were, thin um, because it was such a new uh, country and, and you were in the midst of establishing that that um, that culture, but but it had had thickened by uh, mid-century, last century, mm -hmm. and so the book that I would want to write would be um, building on this this argument and saying it has now changed. That it seemed as though, if you will, the condition of possibility for Australian poetry and, and other cultural markers too uh, was often something overseas. It was Britain. And, and later, to some extent, the United States and, and, and Europe. But by, um, by the, the mid-60s, early 70s, it was, um, it was Australia, Australian literature itself, which was now the ground upon which Australian literature was building. Mm. And, and uh, I saw that particularly in the work of, uh, of Philip Hodgins, who, uh, for whom Australian poetry was all he needed. Uh, it was, you know, mostly recent work, but 20th century Australian poetry was now sufficient grounds upon which to, to be inspired, to want to write, to have a, as a frame of reference. And so, I, you know, I would want to write a book about how that has ramified and how uh, Australian culture has uh, thickened and deepened to the point that it's, it's, it's self-nourishing. Mm. It's not that it doesn't draw on these other traditions. It does, as any good literature will. But it's got its own um, field of operation now, which is uh, autonomous mm -hmm. to some extent. What is the most exciting element of that for you that you've seen recently? Well, I think actually um, what what happens there is you get an impulse towards diversity. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, this is uh, this is now an Australian um, literature, an Australian poetry, and it's reflecting the reality of what Australia is. And all of a sudden, the reality of Australia looks m much different than it did in a kind of Anglo-Celtic way right, in the right. 19th, early 20th And so you have um, you know, uh, much more activity 
in the different communities and the way in which they are, are aware of, uh, of one another now. Mm -hmm. And so there's a cross-fertilization as well as a new appreciation for um, not just the diversity but the, the possibility of, of something new happening. You know, there's this sense that there's a, there's a leading edge mm. and it's, it's, it's moving out in multiple directions. It's yeah. not a single direction. It's, okay. got, it's got a lot of, um, um, of, of, of real interest. And, and if you pick up a, a Best Australian Poets or look at an online journal now uh, of Australian poetry, you just uh, see the, um, the wide uh, range. And, and that's exciting. Yeah, I feel that way too. I feel like it is expanding in multiple directions at once. And um, self-nourishing is a really interesting way to put it. Um, I wanted to ask because I came across a description of your work which said that you're an American critic and scholar, but you are also considered an Australian poet. <laughs> Do you think of yourself as an Australian poet? <laughs> I don't really, but I, I have shown up in a few Australian anthologies. Right, right. Uh, and I have to say that was very pleasing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I would be you know, misrepresenting myself if I went around and said, oh, I'm an Australian poet. Uh, but uh, you know, my roots are kind. I put down roots. I mean, well, you built old, a house. I built a house, and I've built a life. Uh, and when I'm here, I feel like I'm home. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, uh, I just respond to uh, to the the people and place in a in a way that I, I do in America as well. So in some sense, it, it's almost mm -hmm. true. Uh, and um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't push that too hard. Martin Jewell published a review of A Slant of Light, which was a collection that came out in 2008. And he started the review with a bunch of questions. He said, I'm going to ask these questions and I'm going to put them aside. Mm -hmm. And one of them was, what component of Kane's po poetic sensibility is Australian? And I've been kind of trying to think this through recently on the podcast about what is distinctively Australian. Is there even something we could call distinctively Australian? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, those are two different questions. Two different questions, yes. Um, is there anything in your poetry that is distinctively Australian now? Is there anything that's kind of filtered in? The, the only thing you could point to would be, um, you know, subject matter, thematics. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, behind that question is, is a larger one, which is, um, are, there, are there essential features? Yeah, this is what I'm even. struggling with. Yeah. When, once I said it, I sort of thought, well, how on earth could I make that claim? Like, what would I point to besides subject matter and thematics, exactly as you said? Yeah. Which seems sort of dismissible. I mean, part of my uh, early argument was that, yes, there, there is a feature in that, that the, the absence of, of historical romanticism in the early literature was a generative uh, presence mm -hmm. because it, it, it needed it was an absence that a void that had to be filled yep. and so I kept seeing uh, th uh, this uh, recursive re re uh, uh, returning impulse to establish a kind of national identity um, but that's that's sort of accomplished I think now. Yeah. so um, so that's no longer a feature of the of the current um, scene, I would say, but I'm always uh, I'm always wary of essentializing 
Uh, For sure, yeah, and this is why I, I sort of regret trying to make this like yeah, myself. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think I think maybe it's 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 the wrong way to look at it. It's that um, that you know what is Australian is is what is happening is what is being made, and and you can you can maybe find features that stand out. Uh, but it's it's not really um, uh, helpful to fall back on which is, what is actually a, a romantic um, uh, notion of of, uh, of identity mm -hmm. that there are these national characteristics, mm -hmm. and uh, we still live with that. It's one of the inheritances of romanticism, mm -hmm. this idea that there are you know people who have essential characters, and sometimes our sense of the the need for uh, self-determination is based upon, you know, these are people like, say, the Kurds. Mm. You know, they ought to have a homeland. Mm. I mean, that's that's something we inherited from that period, mm. and and that bleeds over into these other kind of notions of of uh, centralizing um, national character. Mm. But uh, it, it it can lead you astray, and it can also it can have a dark side. Definitely, absolutely. Yeah. What do you think then, you, you may have been dreading this question, and we can skip it if you like, but what are your thoughts on the recent decision to appoint a Poet Laureate of Australia? Um, so is that something that's happened? Yes, or? yes. Oh, okay, so we haven't appointed one yet, but um, Anthony Albanese has come out and said that he will. Oh, oh see, I missed that. Uh, I'm so excited to give you this news. Wow. So we're going to have a Poet Laureate. <laughs> wow, okay. That is interesting. It is interesting. Um, Yes, of course, we, uh, we did that not so long ago in America, as, mm. as you may know, mm. although we had, what it really was, was the uh, consultant to the, uh, on poetry to the Library of Congress. Yeah. Mm. And then that simply got renamed. Right, okay. Um, so, it, it, so it doesn't really bear uh, um, comparison to the, the British, you know, which is a lifetime appointment, basically. Mm. Uh, in America, it's, it's it's you know it's worked out fine. It's it, it's only a two-year um, position that's usually renewable and often is, um, and and each time the, the 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 poet laureate tries to do something for for poetry and it it's it's laudable in in a literal sense. Yep. It is a laud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know that it really makes much difference in the long run. Um, I don't know if having a poet laureate is going to do much. Uh, it will certainly um, stir the pot. Oh yes. Um, oh yes. And in some ways, it, it almost strikes me as, as un-Australian. Uh, totally. So I agree with you wholeheartedly at everything you're saying here. My sort of, I have a couple of thoughts on it. One which, is, one of which is, as Australians, we just have such a strange relationship to art and success. And so to put somebody on this pedestal in this way. The ultimate tall poppy in the poetry exactly, world. Exactly. Yeah. But also, I interviewed Sarah Hollenbad about this because she made an argument for it in the monthly a couple of months ago. Mm. And when I spoke to her about it, she was very convincing in saying, you know, this is a way um, to just introduce poetry to more people. And I do feel like because of the Renaissance um, moment mm -hmm. that we're having that it might be a good time to sort of to you know, take it a little bit further than poetry on the move, like a couple of lines on a bus type thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm hugely hesitant and and just filled with worry. 
<laughs> uh, it probably won't spark the poetry wars <laughs> again. But, I hope not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yes, it, it will get uh, it will get some play uh, in the press and, and and maybe in the schools because yeah, you, you do be nice. you know yeah. that's kind of where you want people to be exposed to it because because really people are found by poetry. You know, lots of people are exposed yeah, to it, and, and it, it doesn't, it's just water off a duck's back. But occasionally something happens, mm. and, uh, and that won't happen if they aren't exposed to some extent. I, I heard it put the other day as like um, this idea of the encounter, like you have to just put people mm -hmm. next to, around, in front of poetry, and then they have their own encounter with it, but yeah. you can't control it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Mm. I mean, I, I had a, a friend, a very prominent um, a poet, Richard Howard, who was a Pulitzer Prize poet, and um, uh, a translator, a major translator, over 200 books from French to English, and it was, he was uh, an astonishing character, and he was, he was very much against this notion of, of expanding um, poetry. Uh, in, in the United States. He, he thought it was a bad idea. He, he, he wanted to do the album. He thought it should be something that was considered shameful and was closeted and, and that, <laughs> was, well, that it would have the opposite sort of effect uh, wow, of spreading it. Um, because then, uh, then only those who were really serious about it would you know, engage with it. Uh, but he, he didn't think there was anything to be gained by this uh, attempt to popularize um, poetry. Uh, I, yeah, I know it's a fun <laughs> argument yeah. to me because it's counterintuitive. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't feel the same way about it. But, um, but you know, you're you're never going to really popularize um, poetry uh, as an art. We're we're never going back to the the so-called golden ages, mm. um, whenever they were. Mm. Uh, too much has happened, and too many other media have intervened. And, yeah. and but but the world of poetry is a world unto itself and it's a very expansive world and, and even the types of poetry that one can write uh, uh, indicates just um, how, how uh, broad a universe it really is. It's going to do fine. <laughs> I, I fully believe that and yeah I have no patience for, I mean I know I said I was worried before but I'm not worried for poetry. Mm. Um, you mentioned Richard Howard, so I'm, I'm going to allow myself just, just one question about the many, many amazing literary figures who you have known. Mm. I know this is a very uh, tedious line of questioning, but I, I can't help myself. Please tell me what Elizabeth Bishop was like. Uh, okay. Well, I only had one encounter with Elizabeth That's Bishop. enough. <laughs> and, uh, and she came, she, she came to a, uh, a class. Uh, and I was I was an undergraduate at, at Yale, and it was a class run by Mark Strand, who was a friend of Elizabeth Bishop, and she came. And uh, I I had read her and knew of her, and was very excited. She was quite beautiful. Uh, you know, she was an uh, an older woman by then, but she was exquisitely dressed, plainly. Uh, uh, but uh, there was something in her manner that was also exquisite. Nobody ever says that, that she was beautiful. Nobody ever says that. Well, she, she, you know, in that moment, I, uh, there aren't a lot of photographs which would suggest that. Yeah. But when you, when you saw her um, then, you realize, oh, there's, you know, there's something beautiful about this person. Of course, it's also shined through. Mm. But it was a terribly embarrassing encounter because um, she, um, she read 
uh, bird poems to us. Okay. Uh, and she, she asked us to identify the bird that was uh, being talked about in the poem. Okay. And we were hopeless. <laughs> we, we, we didn't have a clue. And she would, she would read and she would look at She said, but, but it's a blue jay. She would say, you know, a blue jay. And she said, we were just mortified. And then she'd read another one. Oh, no. and, and we couldn't do it. And it was some, I, I think she was just astounded at our ignorance. She was also quite uh, amusing. She was, you know, talking about reading with Lawrence Ferlinghetti at a, and he read a, a, a little snippet of a poem about, uh, I was missing you so much that when I got on the bus, I bought two tickets. Oh. Yeah. And she said, you know, that's an old joke. It's, it, you know, it's very nice, but you shouldn't call it poetry, she said. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's come out. Um, can I have one more? Sure. I promise this is the last one. But I've been on this guy's trail for a while. I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out who he was. Um, Vincent Buckley. Oh, gosh. So Vincent Buckley was um, my uh, thesis adv advisor at Melbourne. Se seriously? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Um, you don't have to talk about him. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I loved Vin Buckley. Um, he was uh, he was from another era, um, and it was um, you know through him that I met Gwen Harwood. So right. I was pleased about about that. But he um, uh, he was. Uh, a passionate um, poet and thinker, somebody for whom literature was just lifeblood. Mm. And so it was wonderful to be um, uh, around him and to, and to work with him. He, um, uh, he, he, he could be difficult uh, for sure, but I never had uh, trouble with him. I, he was surprised at the end of my year when I, when I showed him the completed thesis. He didn't actually re take seriously that I was writing. We would go and we would talk, and I would get him to talk about various things. And he just thought I was having a good time, the way other Fulbright scholars apparently did. Oh, okay, just come for like a tourist. I, I, a little bit. I mean, I, I'm not sure if that was really true, but that was the impression that he had. So he was kind of flabbergasted when I when I gave him a, a completed um, book, and then then he, he he really liked it, which was nice. But he was also uh, keen on on reading my poetry and, and, and had some just terrific um, um, pieces of advice and editorial uh, suggestions. But he, um, I, I'm, I'm interested that you're, you're finding it difficult to get a, a bead on him. Just because his work is, um, like I just don't understand where he fits. Like you said, he, he does feel like he's from another era, but he mm -hmm. doesn't feel like he's from an era that I can identify. Um, he doesn't sound like anybody else. And I don't know. I'm yeah. pretty. I'm pretty simplistic. I need like people. Yeah. No. No. I, I, I'm just <laughs> sympathetic with you. He, he was. I mean, he was part of a of a little world, mm -hmm. <laughs> almost of of um, very intense um, poets from the um, really you know the 50s. Mm -hmm. It seems to me. Um, and, uh, and, and, and poetry was almost a sort of coterie, it seemed back then. Um, and he, um, he was very, he was central to that. But he was, uh, he was convinced that, that poetry was um, vitally important. And when, you, when you're with people like that, 
<laughs> you begin to think the same way. No, that's true. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, yeah. So you know, it it was it was terrific to 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 work with him and to and to read his his um, his work. He was very involved with with Ireland, of course, okay. and and he didn't really think of himself as a. Um, as, as, as Irish Australian, but almost the reverse. He was like an Australian Irishman. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, that I never quite uh, understood. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he he was he was impressive. He was short. He had very chiseled um, you know, features, but he seemed sort of six feet tall mm -hmm. uh, when you were around him. Uh, so intense was he. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I asked. Thank you for entertaining <laughs> that line of questioning. Um, I know that you were just here last night reading your own work, but I wonder whether you would be happy to read a poem. Oh, sure. I haven't prepped you for this. Sure. There is a poem in A Passing Bell that has the lines, I cut a poor figure, a poet, my obscurity well deserved, thank God for my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was great. <laughs> but you don't have to read that one. Anyone's fine. Um. Let's see. D you don't happen to know the number of that because uh, they're, they're just numbers. I, I thought I had it written down, but I, I'm so sorry. So uh, this book of, um, of, I call them gazals, um, because the, um, the cor correct pronunciation, guzzle, mm -hmm. is so ugly in English that, it is unfortunate. Uh, that I, I, uh, yeah. I prefer to mispronounce it as gazals. I think that's a good policy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's quite a history to this, but it's really a, a, a book um, of mourning uh, when my, my wife died. Um, we've been together for 36 years, and uh, this was the way I worked through uh, the mourning process uh, of, of dealing with the sorrow. And um, it, um, it happened over um, a year and a half, you know, writing, trying to write um, um, sitting down daily to see if a poem would come, and, and then when it did, writing it. Uh, so it it draws upon the uh, the Persian uh, form and also a little bit of the the tradition behind the uh, the Persian uh, ghazal. So I'll uh, I'll read you one with the with the ghazal. Often the the poet would put. Um, his or her name at the at the end, um, and um, uh, the American poet uh, Emerson, who translated a lot of um, of Ghazal's, uh, said it was an early form of copyright. Right. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> uh, but in, in these poems, instead of my name, I put uh, my wife's name, Tina. This is number forty-five. When the angel came to me, I didn't recognize him. His wings were hidden. He seemed like anyone else who had known you, coming to say consoling words. But behind the words, a great space opened out, and I was standing in a shimmering place where the wind was visible like waves. It was very quiet, and what the angel said deepened the silence. I have forgotten his words and recall only what they meant. 
that you were living in a foreign land, and I must travel to find it. But first, I need to learn the language of that place, its grammar of absence, its self-erasing syntax, voiceless verbs. I'm afraid it will take me the rest of my life, Tina, so please be patient. Don't wander away to where I can't find you. respond to a project like that but thank you for sharing it thank you for asking yeah. um, it just struck me that you you might have only just got here to Australia did you just arrive recently <laughs> no I've been here actually uh, since the first week in January oh, okay so you're yep. fully you're fully adjusted yes um, and you're sort of six months here, six months there? In no, no, it's really only two months uh, out of the year, or has been. Mm, okay. uh, that's partly because of the academic year. Yeah, okay. um, but, but I have just um, uh, stopped teaching uh, as oh. of uh, the end of December. Congratulations. Thank you. And so I <laughs> will have like more time. you're not going to miss it too much. <laughs> no, I, I love the students and my colleagues. Um, but I, um, after 32 years or so of wrangling with undergraduate prose and poetry, I, I think I'm ready to stop. <laughs> You've done your time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Oh, wow. Um, I'll, I've kept you for too long, I'm sure, but I, I'll just, I just have like one more question, which is because you, because you are between worlds in this way. Mm. Um, you said you feel like you're home when you're here but you are a majority of the year in the U.S. Um, how do you feel about American poetry? Do you feel as excited? Oh, yeah, well, it's huge. Mm. And again, there's just so much activity, mm. uh, partly driven by all the um, writing programs yeah. and all, all right. again, the mentorship that's yeah. going on and uh, the, uh, the audience, you know, is, is huge. I mean, some people claim that, that more people write poetry than read it. That's uh, got to be know. true. <laughs> that, that seems right to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's very alive. It's very alive. And is, um, you know, it's, it's nothing compared to all the, you know, the arts where there's, there's money involved. I mean, it's the great thing about poetry. It just, yeah. just the money's not there, money's so not there. it's not sort of corrupted or potentially corrupted. Mm -hmm. um, you go into the art world, you can be very unsure about what's really going on mm. because of the huge sums of money that seem to uh, distort it. Mm. Um, in uh, in the world of of, uh, of publishing, it's it's not quite as um, bad but but poetry you have to really love it if you're going to do it uh, and if you're going to do it over time uh, then you really do have to read mm. you have to read a lot um, because that sustains it okay hello again you're still here the only private space left on the internet. The last 10 or so minutes of a podcast. Might be a little more than 10 minutes, I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take to get through all this. I've got so many 
lovely notes and emails and thoughts from you all and I didn't want to let that all go to waste so a bit of follow-up here for you how crazy is it that Vincent Buckley was Paul Kane's thesis supervisor that blew my mind <laughs> totally blew my mind I also yeah it was such a thrill in that conversation to be able to be the person who told him that we are going to have a poet laureate I was just like oh man I'm so glad I got that on tape that's uh yeah that was pretty fun just a truly lovely guy just a delight I really hope that I get to hang out with him again so speaking of Vincent Buckley my lovely listener Wayne managed to get me a copy of Vincent Buckley's last poems it took two attempts through Australia Post to get this to me and I am very grateful at the time and energy and cost of doing so because yeah he remains mysterious and hard to get a handle on but I did come across this one poem which did seem like it kind of summed up the personality that Paul was referring to here. This poem is called Brunny Town Hall, referring to Brunswick Town Hall, I'm guessing. Brunny Town Hall by Vincent Buckley. Dancing in the jazz hall at the Brunny Town Hall with a girl that Eddie fancied, doing a line for him. I said, my mate's shy, much as to say, and I'm representing him. And you're not, I suppose? Oh yes, I'm shy as anything, but I was keen to have this dance. So we hit the waxed fresh dance floor and slid on the rosined boards and she held my hand against her back as I murmured close to her ear, I'll dance with you in the greenwood. And she said, he's a bloody rat bag, but he sure can dance. As you swung them into corners, they'd be sniffing your breath for beer and they'd be humming song after song. In the country's crisis, that was the war's worst year. Yeah, I love that little window into life on Sydney Road circa, I don't know, I'm going to guess like a late 70s? Really don't know. Really don't know. There's very little information in here. Uh-oh, there's a poem for A.D. Hope. Okay, avoid that one. Um... So, yeah, thank you, Wayne. Thanks for sending that to me. I will eventually get a handle on this guy. It just takes time. You know, you can't, you can't rush these things. I have now managed to sell through this podcast two copies of The Liar in the Pawn Shop by Fazewicki. Um, it just makes me so happy. Aaron has apparently bought one as well now, and apparently his copy is signed. Good for you, Aaron. The irony, of course, is that I don't have one myself. <laughs> I borrowed mine from the library, but I'm going to get one eventually. I kind of just want to come across it, you know. I don't, I don't necessarily want to go online and just order one. That feels like cheating. When I was at the library the other day, sorry about the sound of my cat drinking there. When I was at the library looking for some Ovid, as one does, I came across um, a plaque on the walk up to the Bailieu for none other than Vincent Buckley. And it reads, Vincent Buckley, 1927 to 1988, inspiring teacher, poet and critic, student of Ireland and Irishness, polemicist and public intellectual. 
so yeah, he was, he was a, he was a man about town. He was a, he was a force. I think it's that thing of like, just because I never hear about him doesn't mean that nobody talks about him. It just means that for whatever reason, his name just wasn't coming into my orbit. Or maybe I wasn't even, I just wasn't noticing it. And now I am. Now he seems to be everywhere. So that's Vincent follow-up. Uh, Follow-up on the Baron Field episode. Everybody had a take on this one. Before I get into that, I want to let you know that I'm going to link to an essay by Brian Cook, who is one-third of the Barons. It's this essay called Dilapidations in an Emergency, Thoughts on an Obscurantist Apocalypse. And look, it's long and it's dense, but my God, it is worth it. Brian sent this to me the other week after we chatted, just as a sort of, you might like this. And um, yeah, I, I sat down while, while I was on holiday, actually, I sat down and started reading it and then just kind of couldn't stop because I felt like he was articulating an experience and, and thoughts and feelings that I had had in those horrible last days of 2021, just so perfectly. So I'm going to link to that. If you were a fan of the Barons, you might like it. It seems like most of you. <laughs> it's not that you weren't fans. It's just that like you had some issues with their um, characterization of the whole poetry versus philosophy thing. So I'm going to read a couple of responses here. Elijah got in touch to say, fundamentally, philosophy and poetry are trying to accomplish similar objectives namely to investigate and identify true things about human experience using the technology of language. It's only when, like Plato or the Romantics, we grossly pigeonhole poets as the feelers and philosophers as the thinkers that we get into this false dichotomy. And um, further into that email, he said, it's not that it's fire and ice, it's peanut butter and chocolate, which is about, that's about the level of... um, argument that I can follow there so that that was good I understood (laughs) understood at that point Elijah also added one of my goals in Versecraft is to demonstrate how close this bond is when you analyze a good poem of sufficient conceptual complexity you can't help but be struck by how effectively poetry can serve as a means to elegantly communicate philosophical ideas yeah I got nothing to disagree with there I mean as we'll get to in this next note I think I think they were really overstating that difference for effect. Um, I don't think that Justin, Adam or Brian would actually disagree with anything you say there, Elijah. Um, Ethan wrote to say, the Barrenfield guys slightly and perhaps purposefully misrepresented Plato and Socrates' opinions on poetry. Socrates, by way of Plato, does say they will leave poets out of the city, but the city he's talking about is only a city in thought and speech, with the historical context that Greece is potentially about to fall, and Socrates is seeking to bolster the philosophical and moral resolve of his interlocutors. So, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Ethan. They are purposefully misrepresenting this this division between poetry and philosophy, so... My my impression of 
what those guys like to do, having listened to their show for a little while now, is that, you know, this is this is all play. This is like playing with ideas and language. And um, yeah, I'd ne- I didn't know anything about about the whole, about that opposition, the supposed opposition between poetry and philosophy before I had a conversation with them. So the fact that they were misrepresenting it was, was lost on me because I didn't even know about it in the first place. As I said to Elijah, I was not driving the bus that day. I did get a couple of good notes too on the left-hand margin. I was asking poets who only write poems that are totally left justified and don't use any formatting tricks and techniques. Uh, What's their reasoning for that? And I got a couple of good notes on that as well. Elijah wrote again to say, left justifying your poem gives the impression of solidity, something built to last, and of a calm and sober mind behind it, a voice whose thoughts are considered and important. I cringe at the idea of slapping lines down in stutters or zigzags. It feels like the words are going to topple over or else float away. I guess what I would say to that is I really don't want you to ever read either of my books, Elijah. (laughs) You will immediately lose any remaining respect that you have for me. Um, Yeah, look. It's an interesting position. I, as usual, I don't know that I can fully agree with it, but I'm very, I'm very interested in it. This thing about there being a calm and sober mind, like, I guess my only thought on that is like, I wonder what that would be like. It sounds nice. I also got a note from Adam, uh, which surprised me actually, because Adam says, I think I am a poet of the left margin. And I guess having read some of Adam's work now, that that seems to be sort of mostly true. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of him only in that category. But what he said was, I think I'm probably quite the prosaic poet and introducing other more ambitious ways to break the line and the syntax interrupts the lyrical flow too markedly for me, both as a reader and a writer. And I think I can relate to that. I'm a bit the same. I'm pretty prosaic, pretty domestic, pretty local. And sometimes I think if you apply these tools, unless you are like some kind of master, like Ken Bolton or like Pam Brown, um, it does end up looking a little bit like you're trying to decorate something that really just needs to be, like you're trying to distract from the the fact that your poem is prosaic and that's not it's not making excuses for itself it doesn't need to it's just that's just what it is so yeah I don't know I'm rethinking all that I can't see myself writing a big spread out poem anytime soon uh yeah this is the problem with like thinking about this stuff too hard as you start to doubt everything Final note here from Coleman. Coleman is pointing me towards a Melbourne poet called Apana Mitra, and he sent me links to a couple of her poems. And she writes in both free and formal verse. And I read a couple of them, and I was like, God damn it, she's really good. (laughs) 
I thought I was going to be Australia's only formal poet. Um, yeah, I didn't actually think that. I have an interview with one of them coming up in a couple of weeks, hopefully. But yeah, Apanamitra, I'm not on Twitter, so I, I can't I can't reach out to her and tell her this. But yeah, beautiful work. Really beautiful. Really stunning and makes me feel envious and like I better get back to work. And yeah, just well done. I'll link to one of them in the show notes. Um, if you are bored, if you are feeling lonely, if you want something to watch, I do recommend uh, Mark Marin's latest one hour special. I basically stopped watching comedy specials because so many of them were so shit. And it was really, you know, there were just like a million terrible ones that came up, came out after um, the pandemic or during. But yeah, I I took the plunge because, you know, I'm a podcaster. I love Mark Maron. And yeah, it's called From Bleak to Dark. And it is so funny. I cackled. There's this one bit where he does an impression of the difference between a Jewish relationship to God and a Christian relationship to God. And it's just devastating. And then the, the sort of the centerpiece of the set, the extended story about the death of his girlfriend, which you wouldn't think you could make any, anything funny from, is, yeah, truly like funny, heartbreaking, like genius, genius stuff. Well done, Mark. Good time had by all. And I'm just looking... For this last little thing, best thing I read this week, collection of essays on Gerard Man- Manley Hopkins. Um, and I just loved this from an essay by, I think this is Austin Warren. It's just talking about Gerard Manley Hopkins' mental state. Another, there was the constant fatigue, the weakness, the sense of premature age, the melancholy, which he had in the words of his letter his late letter to Bailey, all his life been subject, but which had become rather more distributed, constant and crippling, its lightest form a daily anxiety about work to be done. I mean, Gerard, I feel you. Let's, let's get drinks. Let's get drinks.